How many of you, how many of you found it difficult to sit back down when you heard that music? <laughs> I knew it was coming, and I found myself just subconsciously still standing at my seat. And I almost had to fight the urge to look back toward the doors and see if they were going to fling open. Right? And here she comes. And the reason why I wanted to have that play this morning is because I'm going to suggest to you this morning that if the first half, at least, of the book of Exodus were set to music, a wedding processional like that traditional trumpet voluntary might well be the song. We've been looking at different ways to view the Ten Commandments. They are indeed a summary of Torah, God's law, or better translation, in my opinion, God's guide. In the story of Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments, they help shape many other biblical stories, stories like the ones we looked at last week, Jesus' transfiguration and Pentecost, and then there are many others that clearly seem to have their roots embedded in that mountain at Mount Sinai. And finally, last week, we viewed the Ten Commandments as a third and final leg of the kingdom of God. The first leg is God acting in power and grace and love and taking the initiative. The second leg is people responding to that great initiative, love, power, grace of God by saying, look at that, He is God. And then the third leg of the kingdom of God summarized in the Ten Commandments is how we respond when we want to make that God who we recognize as God our God and our King. Now this morning... To end our series in Exodus, I'm going to offer you another view of the Sinai event and the Ten Commandments. It's my favorite. And Jewish scholars in particular view Sinai as a wedding. Now, isn't that interesting? Is it a wedding? Well, way back in Exodus 6, if you remember... We talked about four promises that God makes to his people through Moses. And the fourth and final promise goes like this. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Take you as my own, God says. Well, that's the biblical phrase used for marriage. He took Rebekah as his wife. And then God says, and they will know him. And that's in Hebrew that intimate biblical know as between a husband and wife. The prophets certainly saw a, a marriage between God and his people at Sinai. In Jeremiah, God says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not yet sown. And Jose clearly, clearly calls the Sinai event a wedding. Isaiah says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. And so do you suppose... What if, what if this awesome day at Sinai 
with all of the fire and clouds and thunder and trumpets blaring and earth trembling. What if all of that is a wedding? Well, if it's a wedding, what would you expect to find? It's obviously a Jewish wedding, so you'd find a hoopah, right? You'd find a hoopah, a hoopah or a canopy symbolizing the care and protection of God. I've got a picture for you of, of one for you there. And then Dave and Lisa Beatty came up with this one with the help of Missy Pennington. I kind of like this one better. This is pretty neat hoopah. And I'll tell you in a second why I like this one. But if it's a wedding, we'd find a hoopah. Well, was there a hoopah at Sinai that day? Well, God is standing there on one side on the mountain, Israel standing nearby next to him, and the Bible says God covered the mountain with a dense cloud. I wonder if God wanted his people to think, look, it's a hoopah. It's our wedding. And there's a peculiar Hebrew phrase in this context that your English Bibles probably translate, Israel stood at the foot of the mountain. But the Hebrew literally says, Israel stood beneath or underneath the mountain as if the mountain itself was God's protecting hoopah. And that's why I like this one because it looks like clouds. I should have stood under, you know, okay. Well, what else? What else would you find? What else would we need for this to be a wedding at Sinai? Well, since it's a Jewish wedding, the bride would need to do mikvah be ritually purified before the ceremony. Hmm. God tells Moses, go and consecrate the people right before I come and give the Ten Commandments and speak with them, right before the big event. Consecrate them. Well, what else? A Jewish wedding doesn't have vows like most of us are used to. Instead, the bride and groom make a ketubah, Say ketubah. A ketubah is a marriage contract containing the conditions of marriage. And it's written on elaborate paper in an elaborate way with special ink and writing. And the bride and groom with great pomp and circumstance and shofars blowing would ceremoniously sign the ketubah. Hmm, is there anything like a ketubah around that day at Mount Sinai? Two copies. The Ten Commandments, those tablets. Huh. Well, what else? Well, if it's a wedding, there needs to be a sign or symbol of the marriage. And today we commonly use a ring as the sign of our relationship with our husband or wife, a sign that we're married. Well, what about Exodus 31, where God says to Israel, The Sabbath will be a sign between me and you, so that you may know that I am the Lord. And that's that intimate Hebrew married know again. Could it be that Sabbath was their wedding ring? My brothers and sisters, what if, what if Torah and the Ten Commandments what if it's not just about legal code? Oh, it was that. What if it's not only a covenant and it was that? 
What if it's not just about the beginning of the kingdom of God that one day would spread across the entire universe? It was that too. But what if, what if Torah and the Ten Commandments and the law was also God's way of saying, I love you. Now, I've been suggesting to you throughout our series in Exodus that God has been making his case to his people to choose him above all other gods, Egyptian or otherwise. And maybe a better way for me to say it is that God has been courting his people as a man courts a woman in marriage. You know, boy meets girl, and he just knows, oh, she's the one. And he's got eyes only for her. He puts like his entire life on hold to woo her and catch her and get her. He does everything he possibly can to convince her that he's also the one for her. And just look at God courting Israel. Delivers her from Egypt. Parts the Red Sea. Provides water and manna and quail in the desert. And protects her from the Amalekites. Oh my word, the Israelites must have been deeply in love with this groom by the time they got to Sinai. It's why a wedding processional may be appropriate for Israel's march to Sinai. God is courting the Israelites really ever since we cracked the book on Exodus 1. And this wedding processional has been slowly approaching the dead center of the book of Exodus, the wedding ceremony at Mount Sinai. God is courting the Israelites, and by the time they get to Sinai, she must have been deeply in love with this awesome groom. And oh, what a tough outfit for God to love. The living, breathing definition of a high-maintenance bride. <laughs> at, at every turn, obstinate, insisting, unwilling, fickle, petulant. And you know what? God loved her anyway. And do you know what this means, this picture for the Ten Commandments? One perspective at least. If Sinai is indeed a wedding, then the Ten Commandments are the wedding vows. Not simply a list of do's and don'ts. They're that. But the Ten Commandments are also God's way of saying, I love you in marriage. Can we understand why religious Jews dance when the Ten Commandments are read? Can you imagine in your wildest dreams in a Christian church a dance breaking out while the Decalogue and Ten Commandments are being read? They dance because they hear God saying again ever since Sinai, I love you, my bride. You want to hear God saying, I love you, this morning? Two people do. Why don't you meet me in the lobby? Do <laughs> you want to hear? I won't ask you to dance. So you're thinking he's going to ask us to dance. I won't ask you to dance. But you want to hear God say, I love you? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, including no idols. 
And don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. And don't steal. Don't give false testimony. And don't envy. Because I love you. And let me try to even put it more into marriage language. God tells his people at Mount Sinai, over everything in the whole world, in the whole universe, which is mine, by the way, over all of it, over every other nation, tribe, or people, you, my people, are my segula, my treasured possession. But no other lovers, bride, not even statues or pictures of them. And here, bride, take my name. It's an honor for me to give it to you, and I give it to you eagerly. Use it well. Oh, and my bride, please, find time for me to love me and to get to know me more. We'll call it Sabbath. And, and, and bride, please, get along. Be united. Don't kill each other or take each other's husbands and wives or other possessions. Honor your moms and dads. Be faithful in your marriages. Don't lie about each other. And don't envy what someone else has, my bride. Bride, get along. Be united. That's the Ten Commandments. And it's tragic, really, that we often turn them into legalism. What we say is legalism, God calls love. It's His love language. Do you want to show God you love Him? Tell Him, sure. But He wants to see it. Experience it with you, just like you who are married do from your husband and wife. How do you love God? Obey Him. And maybe we start to hear that, and we start down that road of, oh, that's that Hebrew Bible Old Testament works thing. Well, let's listen to some New Testament then. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's Jesus. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. That's Jesus. This is love for God, the Apostle John writes, to obey his commands. But pastor, what about grace? Well, what about grace? Brothers and sisters, God saved Israel by grace too. They did nothing to deserve it. Are you kidding me? Absolutely nothing. They didn't come to Sinai to learn how to be saved. They already had that. Sinai isn't where Israel came to be saved. It's where she came to learn to how to love God. And the love language that God looks for is obedience. It's not a burden. 
We don't obey to be saved. We're already married. Imagine, imagine a husband and wife today after the wedding ceremony and honeymoon. They come home and the husband or wife or either of them says something like, well, well wait a minute. You know, what? I, I can't have any other lovers? Can I carry pictures of them in my wallet? In just a minute, you're saying that as a condition of this marriage, I have to help maintain a home and provide things and raise children and mow the lawn and keep things in order and I have to spend quality time with you? That's legalism. That's a works-based relationship. Well, that would be absurd, right? Can you imagine that? Well, don't we often treat the Ten Commandments and obedience just like that when it comes to our relationship with God? Obey? <sighs> Wait a minute, we're saved by grace. That's legalism. No, that's love. And we now have the privilege to be part of the very same bride that stood underneath that mountain at Sinai because in Christ Jesus we have been grafted into her, Paul assures us. In Christ Jesus we too are now God's segula, his treasured possession, not by works but by grace for Israel then and for us today. You husbands out there, you husbands out there, do you remember the day? I'll bet you remember the moment when you were standing maybe in a church like this or some sort of room or someplace up front looking back up the aisle for your bride. Remember? And then finally, the doors in the back were opened and the music plays and there she was. Beautiful. Glowing. Can't take her eyes off of you. Remember? That's how God looked at Israel. And how he looks at you. And you brides, remember, remember coming down that aisle, brides, maybe on your daddy's arm, and seeing your groom standing there, grinning, looking back at you, his eyes on you and you alone. Ladies, your almost husband, grinning there, waiting for you to come take his hand while the trumpets played. Do you remember, ladies? That's Israel looking at her almost husband at Mount Sinai. Do you remember your wedding or maybe even weddings that you've attended if you're not yet married? We asked those of you who are married to send in your wedding pictures and wow, did you remember. So John put together a video of what you sent and I wanted to play it now just to help us all get the feel again, married or not, just to look back and remember those wedding and marriage moments. Let's watch.
some applause, doesn't it? See, there's something about those wedding pictures and wedding albums, isn't it? I mean, all of you riveted, you can't look away. There's a feeling that comes over you when you look at that day and remember, like flipping through your wedding album. And when a religious Jew reads Exodus... It's like that. It's like she's looking at her wedding album because that's God and his people, a wedding, a marriage. That's God's picture for you, the people of God, and him. And when Israel hears the wedding vows, what does she say? 
when she hears that God desires to take her as his segula, treasured possession. What does she say? They all shout, we do! We do! We do! Three times she says it. She's so excited, apparently, to be taken by God as his segula. And if we've lost that today, can we reclaim it? In our relationship with God, can, can we reclaim the love affair of a bride to her husband? You who are married know how you feel when your husband or wife pleases you, right? What a thrill. And it's the same for God. And how do we do that? We obey Him. But while God is on the mountaintop with Moses writing the ketubah, do you know what happens? The people of Israel, his bride, has an affair at the wedding. The golden calf. And we see God's anger in the text but also feel the hurt in his heart. How would you feel if your bride or groom, ladies, how would you feel if your bride or groom had an affair at the wedding? And even while you were making your wedding vows, how would you feel? Angry, hurt, devastated, can you feel God's broken heart? And God is so angry and so hurt and so broken hearted. He's ready to destroy Israel and start all over again. He's that distraught. And Moses says, no God, no God, me instead, me instead, me instead. And for some reason God listens. Okay, go down. No wonder Moses is upset. He's got to climb down that mountain again. <laughs> Go down, and there must be discipline. And Moses goes down, and they grind up the golden calf into powder and mix it with water, and the people drink it. And if they're guilty, they died. And if you're still wondering if this whole Sinai thing is really a wedding, consider in addition the bizarre ceremony we find in Numbers 5 where a wife suspected of being unfaithful to her husband has to drink living water mixed with dust from the tabernacle floor. And if she's guilty, it makes her very, very sick. I don't know what to make completely of all that, but isn't it interesting that here at Sinai is the same sort of thing as if what's at stake here at Sinai, like Numbers 5, is a marriage or a wedding vow. And do you know what? Someone say what? God forgave his bride. And it's really an amazing story. Before the golden calf incident is reported in Exodus, God is up on the mountain with Moses, and he says, in effect, okay, if I'm going to be Israel's husband, then we need a place together. So here's what I want you to do. Make a tent. Make it such and so and this and that. And you go ahead sometime and read through those later chapters in Exodus. 
And one thing you wonder is if God is making sure that you have to be really, really tough to read the Bible because it goes on forever in excruciating detail. This is where a lot of us who've decided to read the Bible in a year, we bail out screaming into the night, only to be met by Leviticus. Ugh. But here's the picture. Picture a bride and a groom sitting down together, planning their house. Every detail. Where does the table go? What about the curtains and lamp? What's that for? What is that? How does that work? When do we use that room? And right at that moment in the narrative, while God is planning their house together, Israel has an affair with the golden calf. And after that's all finished, after there's been discipline, just look at our groom. Okay, that hurt, but I still love you. Come back. And then the first thing God does is he goes through all of those tedious instructions on tabernacle again. Almost word for word, chapters and chapters and chapters, as if God is saying, you want to know how much I love you? Let's sit down from scratch, start all over, and we'll begin again. Let's plan our house again. And by the way, that tabernacle for Israel is a lot like the wedding video. Did you know? Either the one you watched or your own wedding video. There's a menorah in there reminding them of God's courtship in speaking to Moses from the burning bush. There's a table of showbread in there reminding them of, oh, do you remember when God was courting us? He gave us food to eat in the desert. And then reminders from the wedding ceremony itself, an altar of incense sending up a cloud in front of the holy presence of God, a chuppah. And how about in the covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant, the ketubah, the two tablets, and the staff of God, No wonder history lost track of where Sinai is. Didn't matter anymore because Israel took the Sinai experience with them in the tabernacle. And so God brought his people to Mount Sinai to see his power. Fire and smoke on the mountain. Thunder. Shofars, that ram's horn, the biblical trumpet blaring, filling the air. And the earth trembles and God spoke. And he brought them there to see him and hear him because he loved them like a bride. And if we've lost that picture of marriage to our great, big, powerful, and loving God and all that goes with that, can we reclaim it? Can we hear the Ten Commandments as God's dancing music to I love you? Because when we do, I think we're closer to the bride that God designed us to. To be. Maybe we can start again by saying, We do! to God's offer in marriage and, and start by celebrating our relationship with God as we would a, a marriage or a, a wedding anniversary. So, how do we say, We do to God's offer of marriage? Well, Israel that day shouted, Here's option number one how we could do it. Israel that day shouted, Naaseh Venishma! Everything you said, we will do. 
I suppose we could shout that too. But Jesus taught us another way to say, we do. When a religious Jew, even today, stands to pray and thinks about her relationship with this unbelievable God, the God of Sinai, the husband of Israel, she always recites Hosea. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. And then that Jewish person turns and says, Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And Jesus added, love your neighbor as yourself. Shema is how Jesus taught us to say, we do. Last week, I I reminded you that when we choose to follow the Lord, we need to expect to give every ounce we've got. And I reminded you that we not only need to bring the message but be his message. And I was sharing with a friend earlier in the week. Ah, I was praying for you guys. I really didn't like ending the sermon on that note because it sounds so impossible, so imposing. Oh, is that all we got to give? Every ounce and we got to be the... Oh, it sounded so heavy. So let me be quick as I can this morning to add this. Please know that God doesn't leave us on our own to give it our all and be the message. He gives us each other, and he joins with us in the two shall become one flesh picture of marriage. We call it the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He joins with us and in us and through us, one flesh in picture and marriage. And we have almighty, loving God giving His every ounce as we give our all. And His being the message with ours as we become the message every single step of the way. And oh, what a groom! And what a God! To end this morning, I'd love to invite you, if you like, to say, I do, to God's offer of marriage, His offer to be your God. Maybe it's the first time you'll ever say, I do to God. Or maybe you've said, I do already your whole life. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. Maybe you're coming out of a golden calf experience where you've been unfaithful to God. Maybe you're struggling or even entrenched in that sin right now. But whatever the case, or whoever you are, or wherever you are in your relationship with God either your lifelong relationship or maybe today will be your first day ever in your life, I want to give the opportunity this morning for you to say, I do, to God. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. And if today you want to say, I do, to God, if you want to choose to serve Him, if you want to ask Jesus into your heart, if you are ready to call Him your Lord and Savior and make Him your King, If you want to join in with God's people everywhere since Israel and be grafted into that bride of Christ, then how about we stand and say together, Shema to God. What Jesus taught us is, I do. Now, please, my hesitancy always in doing this corporately, 
And so I don't want anyone to feel peer pressured into doing it. It's okay. It's okay if you're not ready or comfortable with it. And if you're not and you want to talk to someone about it, I'm happy to speak with you after the service. Come find me. So don't feel pressured into doing it. But every once in a while, by the same token, I know that God's Spirit moves in and among praise and worship and music and message and Bible. So once in a while, I just have to ask and give anyone here that opportunity, young or old, new Christian, old Christian, to again, either for the first time, say their wedding vow to God or to recommit it. So, if you'd like to say, I do to God, would you please stand and let's recite Shema. We'll do the Hebrew responsively and then in English together. We'll also let this be our benediction this morning as well. So my friends, my brothers and sisters, any and all who are here today, do you want to accept God's offer of being your God and belonging to Him as His segula, His treasured possession? If so... Let him hear your I do this morning. Please repeat the Hebrew after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloeka. Bechol levavka. Uvahol nafshecha. Uvahol meodeka. Uveahafta reacha kamocha. Amen. That means amen. You knew that one, I'm sure. Good. That warmed you up for the English, right? Together in English, let's say we do to God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We do! (laughs) Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you in your amazing word. It's so obvious that you go out of your way to help us experience and know and feel what relationship with you is like. And so you borrow from any and all experiences where we can even taste what it's like to know you. And so you tell us in your word that our relationship to you is like that of a a loving relationship between a father and his son and daughter. And our relationship with you is like the relationship you tell us, and you sing of it in the Psalms especially, that, Father, our relationship to you is the same as the relationship of a mother between her children. And, oh, you're not done there yet, Father. You tell us and you liken our relationship with you and with each other in you as brothers and sisters and even as friends, that loving friendship relationship. Jesus tells us you call us friend. And, oh, you're not done there yet, Father. In a foundational way of all of Scripture even, you choose the deepest human experience possible, this side of fully realizing the kingdom of God to give us a picture, even a taste of what it's like to know you. And you tell us that you are our husband and we're your bride. And you tell us we're married and that you treasure us as your segula. Oh, Father, 
May we recapture the love affair of a bride for her husband. May obedience not bounce off our ears or hearts and feel like a burden. May you give us, even today, stir in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Anoint us, Father. Give us a special anointing, even this morning, to experience and feel again just how deeply it is that we're in love with you and how obedience just flows from us eagerly. Instead of asking, oh, do I have to do that? Maybe out of our heartfelt love, Father, it's like, what more can I do? Father, we love you. And we pray it in the name of the one who did it all, your son's name, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, before you leave, I lost it. Ah, a traditional wedding vow often ends with the phrase, you may now kiss the bride. And so, there is a kiss waiting for you in the lobby. This morning on your way out, it's a little Hershey's kiss. Be sure to get yours. And when you eat it, think of your heavenly Father. See you next week. And please, bring a friend to the concert. Not many will come to hear a message. Many will come to hear music. God bless you all.